verses 15 through 23. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. That's Matthew 27, verses 15 through 23. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Your life and my life are never going to be complete until we make the choice about what we're going to do with Jesus. Your life and my life are never going to be complete until we make the choice about what we're going to do with Jesus. And central to who Jesus is, is what we've been looking at over the last several weeks, and that is the cross of Jesus. You see, the cross, a lot of people see a lot of different things in it. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins his epistle by talking about what the cross is to the Jews and especially what it is to the Greeks. And Paul would say that the cross to some people is a stumbling block, something they just can't get over. And every time they try and walk over it, every time they try and step over it, they just stumble at it because they can't understand it. Paul would say to some, the cross is foolishness. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Why would God choose an instrument of torture and an instrument of death for that being the plan or in the plan for the redemption of all mankind? A lot of people can't get past what the cross is to them. And yet Paul would say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To some, the cross is powerful. And as we look at the cross this morning, we've been looking at the different aspects all around the death of Jesus. We began by talking uh, several weeks ago about the import about the cross, about why it was necessary for Jesus to die. And then we moved along to talking about the miracles at the cross, about the things that really testified of God's perspective of what was going on during that time, the, the miracle of the earthquake and the, uh, the, the temple veil being split in two and the rocks being split and, uh, and the darkness and, and later on the dead being raised to go and appear to many in Jerusalem after his resurrection. And then we talked about the women that you meet at the cross. And today we're going to continue that series and talking about the men that you meet at the cross because, folks, our life is never going to be complete until we see ourselves as some of these men saw them and what they saw on the cross are some of the same things that men today are going to see in it. But your life is never going to be complete until you decide what are you going to do with Jesus so let's look around the cross this morning and see some men that we meet there and notice what they saw in it and see if that reflects some of the things, the same things that we see. 
We're going to begin by talking about the soldiers that were there at the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible, please, to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this particular point, we're going to look at John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. When they got to Golgotha, the place of the skull, there this death squad, these four soldiers that are Romans, began to take over. And as we understand history of what the Romans did in crucifixion, it was brutal. But what we also find is the people that were responsible for carrying out such a sentence, these soldiers as it were, were a professional death squad. They had most likely been to a lot of crucifixions. This was not their first rodeo as the old colloquialism is. But they had done this dozens, perhaps hundreds of times, perhaps thousands of times. And as they did it, they had it down to a science to be able to inflict the most amount of pain on somebody and be able to cause their suffering to go on for the longest amount of time. They knew what they were doing and driving those nails in just the right place where the person would bleed, but they wouldn't bleed out. Where the person would suffer, but they wouldn't, uh, their suffering wouldn't be cut short, but it would be prolonged. They knew exactly what they were doing. And what you find on this occasion is that the last amount and the last shred of a dignity of a person would probably be the clothes that they were wearing. The last shred of dignity of that person was taken away there just before they were crucified. And with Jesus, it was no different. Jesus had some articles of clothing that were on him. And in fact, there were four parts that were still intact, the head covering, the belt, the sandals, and the outer garment. However, verse 23 notes something particular, that he had this garment, this tunic, that was without seam, woven from the top, and in one piece. And as the soldiers had all already gotten a piece of the clothing of Jesus, the last thing that they do is they pull out the dice and say, who's going to get this nice piece of garment? Who's going to get this nice piece of clothing? And they began to take the dice and roll the dice to decide who's going to be the one that got it. What's remarkable about this in a number of ways is this, is that they fulfilled scripture without really even knowing it. Down here beside John 19, verses 23 and 24, I want you to write a cross-reference to Psalm 22 and verse 18. Psalm 22 and verse 18. Because the psalmist in describing in prophetic terms the suffering of Jesus would talk about this particular aspect of what the soldiers would do, about how they would take his garments and how they would, would cast lots for them. How they would show that there were some people that at the death of Jesus, all the cross was to them was a chance for them to play games. It was a place of indifference. It was a place to not really regard what was going on. And I wonder sometimes, brethren, if we don't regard the cross as the same thing. That every week that we gather together and we observe the Lord's Supper, just like what Logan led, us in, led our minds in just a few moments ago, if we just don't see this as an opportunity maybe to play games or to, to treat it as a, a, a suffering of something that really doesn't have any bearing or any any, uh, uh, any effect on us at all. I wonder about that soldier that won the tunic. And I wonder about that soldier that won the tunic and then him taking this home to his, to his wife and being saying, you'll never guess what I got from the prisoner today. I got this beautiful piece of cloth. Oh, really? Tell me about the crucifixion. No, you don't want to hear the details about that. But guess what? I got another nice piece of clothing for us to own. Hey, these people regarded the clothing as more important as the life of a person who was dying there on the cross. Are we just content to treat the cross as a place of indifference, a place to play games? And the New Testament would talk about that in regard to the cross being just a place that becomes just ordinary. 
In fact, in observance of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what Paul cautions those brethren to do is to remember that what they're doing is they're partaking unto the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, and they're proclaiming that until he comes. And he says there's, there's, a, there's a, a, an observance and a consideration of self and a thinking about what, who I am and what Jesus has made me through his body and through his blood. And if I don't consider that, he says, that person is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He says, for this reason, many of you are sick, many of you sleep, because we treat the cross, we treat the observance of the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus, as something ordinary, something common. And maybe we're just content to play games at the foot of the cross when what we ought to see is something that's life-changing, something transformational. Look at this, number two. I ask you to turn to Matthew 27, verses 15 to 20. The scripture reading that James read for us just a few moments ago and about Barabbas. Or about Barabbas. Barabbas saw on the cross, I believe, a place of undeserved blessing. What you're looking at when you look at Barabbas is a fascinating character because what you're looking at is basically a first century terrorist. Barabbas was a first century terrorist. Three of the four gospel accounts mention him. Here in Matthew 27 verse 16 it says it was a notorious prisoner. Mark chapter 15 verse 7 says that he was a murderer and he was an insurrectionist. John 18 verse 40 says that he was a robber. And consider just for a moment what Pilate is doing here uh, in, in this account. He knows Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. He knows there's no real charge that the Jews had, but rather that they handed him over because of envy. And so with Barabbas, what's amazing about this is that Pilate begins to go through the, uh, the files in Jerusalem. Because at the Passover, at the time which this is taking place... The governor had a, a, a um, tradition that he was going to do the Jews a favor and he was going to release somebody that was in prison. Usually it was somebody that was in prison for political reasons. Usually it was somebody who was a hero that would have been lauded by the Jews. And Pilate says, all right, I'm going to give you that choice. But before he does that, he goes back into the files of what's going on there in Jerusalem and he's looking for the worst, the worst of the worst. The one that he can't imagine that the Jews would ever say, yeah, we want that guy freed instead of Jesus the Christ. And he finds this man sitting in prison waiting for his own execution by the name of Barabbas. And as he finds this man, he thinks there's no possible way that these Jews would ever want this murderer walking the street. Here's the question. Who would you like walking the street more, Jesus the Christ or Osama bin Laden? Who would you like walking the streets more, Jesus Christ or Timothy McVeigh? Who would you like walking the streets more, Jesus the Christ or Charles Manson? Which would you feel safe with your children walking beside there in the marketplace? Which one would you appreciate having uh, walking hand in hand or side by side with, with the fellow people of the day? And Pilate says, there's your choice. You got Barabbas or you got Jesus. I would have loved to see the expression on Pilate's face when the people would say, give us Barabbas. Set Barabbas free. Even more so, as Pilate, astounded, goes and gives the order, can you imagine Barabbas sitting there in that jail cell in Jerusalem on this Friday morning? And as he hears the guard's footsteps come down the hall, he knows it's time. And as he is sitting there in his, in his cell, maybe he begins to shake, maybe he begins to wonder and think, this is it. 
Those two other guys that maybe I committed this crime with, all three of us are going to go to our death today. And as Barabbas hears the keys in the lock and hears the door swing open, the guard gives him a kick and says, get up, you're free. What? Barabbas, get up, you're free. You're free to go. Why? Because the people wanted to crucify this man called Jesus more than it wanted you to be crucified. There is a very real sense in which the cross that was meant for Barabbas was the one that Jesus took. The cross that Barabbas should have been crucified on was the one that Jesus was crucified on. And consider that for ourselves, brothers and sisters. We think about that, that I should have been the one that was dying on that cross that day, and yet he took my sins upon himself so that I could live. And he took the punishment that was so, uh, so due to me, and he took that upon himself. But then think about this continually from Barabbas' perspective. What do you suppose he did after that? I wish, in a lot of respects, that the New Testament wasn't silent about Barabbas after this moment. What do you suppose he did with his newfound freedom as he began to step out of that Roman prison and into the sunlight and began to look at this beautiful Friday morning and think, huh, I wonder what I'm going to do today. I wonder if he went back to his old life of being a notorious murderer and being an insurrectionist and being a robber. I wonder, but the Bible doesn't say. I wonder if Barabbas began to inquire and make inquiry about, about the one that took his place. Now tell me about what this man did, this, this Jesus of Nazareth. I'm told that he, he took the cross that I was supposed to be on. Tell me about his crime. Well, he didn't really do anything wrong except make the wrong people mad. There wasn't any sin that he committed. In fact, he went about doing good. Colin people heard him gladly and they, were, they rejoiced. They, in fact, just a couple days earlier, they, they, they laid down palm branches and said, Hosanna to the Son of God, Hosanna in highest. He went in, he cleansed the temple, he cleared it out, but those Jewish leaders, they wanted him dead. I wonder if Barabbas, because of the great blessing that Jesus provided in a very literal sense for him, if he ever obeyed the gospel, if he ever became obedient to the Christ, I don't know because the Bible doesn't say. But brothers and sisters, what we see in the cross says a whole lot about the condition of our hearts and sometimes we can look at the cross and we can look at it as a place of indifference, but what we ought to be doing with the cross is looking with the eyes of Barabbas and realizing the cross for us is a place of undeserved blessing. There was nothing that you did, there was nothing that I did as we were sitting under the sentence of death to be able to get ourselves out of the mess that we were in. But God who is rich in love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespassed in sins, made us alive together with Christ. For Barabbas, the cross was a place of undeserved blessing. What do you see in the cross? Notice number three. We're going to look at the centurion. Turn in your Bible, please, to Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. To the centurion that was there on that occasion, the cross was a place of discovery. The cross was a place of discovery. Once again, we've mentioned how hardened, how callous those Romans were with regard to uh, the crucifixion. And how they probably engaged in dozens of, or perhaps hundreds of crucifixions over the lifetime of, of them being uh, this death squad, this responsibility for carrying out the, the retribution of, of, of the Romans. And maybe this centurion was one of the soldiers who sat there and who played dice on this occasion. But over the course of these six hours that Jesus was up there on the cross... Over the course of the time that, that once they put him on that cross and he began to say things from the cross and they began to see the signs surrounding the cross and he began to watch the way that these people were passing by and, and casting insults at him and the way that Jesus took those things, 
There was something that changed in the centurion. There was something that changed in what he saw and the way that he saw Jesus dying on this. Maybe it was the ridicule. Maybe it was uh, what he heard Jesus speaking. Maybe it was the signs, the earthquake or the temple or uh, uh, being split or the veil being split or the darkness. There was something about this that spoke to this centurion that said, this is not an ordinary crucifixion. What's going on here is not and is anything but ordinary. There's something extraordinary about this man. And as this centurion watched the way Jesus died, Mark 15, verse 39, notice, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. You might have, but you also might write a cross-reference to Luke 23 and verse 47. Luke 23 and verse 47, Luke records a slightly different statement that he makes. He says, certainly, this was a righteous man. What the centurion observed this member of this death squad, as he watched the events, it wasn't just a place of indifference. It wasn't just a place where he could just play games and then go home to his family at the night, but he watched the way Jesus died and he noted some things about him, that he was the son of God and he was righteous. There was nothing that this man had done deserving of death. To this man, the centurion, the cross was a place of discovery. It's remarkable to me that somebody with an, uh, with an honest heart, a soldier with an honest heart could see what the most learned people in Israel could not. And for this man, the cross was a place of discovery. He had overseen the execution of a righteous man, the very son of God. Every time we return to the cross, brothers and sisters and friends, the cross ought to be a place of discovery for us. God forbid that it should ever become ordinary, that we should ever fail to see the blessing but may it always be anew that we can look and say, this is the one who was righteous. I am of my own power unrighteous. This is the one who was son of God and I was a child of wrath. The cross ought to be for us a place of discovery. Number four, what is the cross to these men? Look at the religious leaders, Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43. Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43. To those religious leaders that passed by, the cross was simply a place of ridicule, a place to cast insults and to dig the knife in, so to speak, just one more time. The Bible is not silent with regard to these men and to their motives. In fact, in both Matthew and Mark, the Bible would say that Pilate knew that these men had handed Jesus over because of a singular motive, envy. And what you're going to find with envy, even in your life and my life, is that when we become envious, we desire to destroy somebody else because what they have is not what we have. Envy is always going to destroy the object of its desire. That's just the nature of the, of the beast. The nature of envy is we're going to look at somebody and say, because you have this and because I don't have this, I hate you for it and I want to destroy you. Maybe that takes on very little passive-aggressive ways. Maybe it's very open. Maybe it's very... Uh, um, uh, evil and, and, and manipulative ways. But as these Jewish leaders felt like they had won the victory, they couldn't help but rub the salt in the wound, so to speak. And notice they had set their hearts against the Lord from the very beginning, but they're now issuing challenges to the Savior, to Jesus. Verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. 
Here, Jesus saying that so that you can know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Luke, or Mark chapter 2, and talking to the man who was paralyzed about how he t- would make statements about himself, about the Son of Man coming to seek and save the lost, about how he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now they're saying, here he is, Savior of Israel. He saved others. He can't save himself. They said, verse 42, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. You know, the truth of the matter, even if Jesus did come down from that cross, there wasn't a chance that those men were going to believe in him. Because they had so set their hearts against him, and because they had so hardened their hearts, there was nothing that Jesus would have done that would have convinced them that they were wrong because they were so puffed up with their pride. Let us come now and let him come down from the cross and we will believe. You know, just a few days earlier from this, back in John chapter 12, you know what they were doing? They'd heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And you know what they were doing in John chapter 12 verses uh, 9 through 11? They were plotting to kill Lazarus. We've got to cover this up somehow. There's this notable miracle that's been done. Here's a man who is dead, who we know is dead for at least three days, and he's now up walking around. We've got to find a way to kill this man. It's, again, testimony to the hardness of heart. Look down at verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him save him. There's a mockery of his faith, a mockery of the faith of Jesus. Friends, we mentioned several times Sometimes the devil waits till we're weakest before casting the strongest attacks against us. I don't know how Jesus did what he did. I don't know how he withstood the temptation to just say the word and call down 12 legions of angels. I don't know how with his infinite power and his understanding of him being both the son of man and son of God at the same time, how he didn't pronounce judgment upon those people that were casting those insults against him just right there on the spot with a word, don't you know, that he could have said and they could have breathed their last. I don't know how he did what he did, but I am so grateful that he did. How we listened to all the words, their ridicule, the viciousness of the words, and how he was able to stay up there on his cross. Sometimes Satan's strongest attacks come just before the greatest of victories. And I appreciate that. That Jesus was able to withstand, even though some saw it as a place of ridicule. Number five. To some, the cross is a place of responsibility. John chapter 19, verse 27. John chapter 19, verse 27. Jesus, as he's hanging there on the cross... We noticed with the women that stood by that to marry his mother, the cross was a place of reward. That was one of the points that we made last week about the women that you see in the cross. And yet the one disciple, it seems, that was brave enough, if you will, to get closest to where Jesus was. You remember that John was the one that uh, was known to the, the courtyard, the doorkeeper, the high priest. And as he went into the high priest's courtyard to try and be near to Jesus, again, he's keeping his distance, but he's one of the ones with Peter that's nearest. And now even though all of Jesus' disciples had turned and fled, here's John standing at the foot of his Savior, of Jesus the Christ. And Jesus takes the time and the breath and the energy and the, the, the pain that it takes 
to push himself up so that he can have the breath to be able to say, woman, to his mother, behold your son. But in John 19, verse 27, he turns his attention to John and says, behold your mother. And from that time, it said, the Bible says, John took that woman into his house, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We talk a lot about being near the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. And we want to stay near to the cross. I will cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. But friends, God help us if we try and say that we're going to stay near the cross without viewing the cross and seeing the cross as a position of a responsibility. Without realizing it calls us to be responsible for our own lives and be responsible for living the way Christ wants us to live. That's why the New Testament writers would say, therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good unto all, especially those of the household of faith, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. That's why at the very end of a, a passage about the resurrection of Jesus after his death and his burial, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know what that tells me? Galatians 6, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, that you and I have a responsibility based upon the cross that Jesus put there. And if we ever say the cross is important to me, Jesus' death is important to me, Jesus' resurrection is important to me, and I don't see it as a place of responsibility that it calls me to service and it calls you to service, I wonder if we're not thinking and seeing the right thing in the cross that we ought to. Last one. Turn your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 23. And the thieves that were crucified there with Jesus saw the cross as a place of promise. As you follow what happened there on the cross, as Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m. and hung on the cross until the time that he died, about 3 p.m., from the very beginning all the way to the very end, there was a change in one of these thieves. Because the Bible says that Matthew 27, verse 44, and that's a good cross-reference right here beside Luke 23, 43. Matthew 27, verse 44, it says, even the robbers, as Matthew goes through the list of the people that were wagging their heads and passing by and saying, you who said that you're going to destroy the temple in three days and, and raise it back up, come down from the cross. Let's see if Elijah's going to come down and save him. As Matthew goes through the people that are reviling him and accusing him and saying horrible things about him while he's hanging there in pain, dying for the sins of the world. Matthew records, even the thieves, plural, even the thieves who were crucified with him reviled him. But over the course of the time, for those six hours that Jesus was there, one of those thieves had a change of heart. And as a, one of those thieves on one side of him began to revile him again and say, you who are supposed to be the king of Israel, save yourself and save us. The other thief has something to say to him. He says, don't you fear God? Do you not even fear God? There's a reverence there to what he just said. Do you not fear God? And he says, here's an accusation. We are deserving of this death that we're dying here on the cross we're receiving a just reward for what we've done and being robbers and being thieves. 
But he says, in vindicating Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. You know what a great study would be for you to do? Go back to, through the cross and through the passion narrative and really look at the people that vindicated Jesus with their words. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find a name like Judas. You're going to find a name like Pilate, the governor. You're going to find a name like Pilate's wife. You're going to find the centurion that we've already talked about saying, truly, this was the son of God. Truly, this was a righteous man. You're going to find this thief. That is a band of undesirables, if you will. And yet every single one of them were able to see something that the most learned men in Israel couldn't see on that day. This man says, do you not even fear God to the other thief? We are deserving for what we've done, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love Jesus' answer. I loved it from the first time that I read it as I was sitting there in a pew one Sunday morning where Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And I thought, what an amazing statement. What a wonderful thing if the Lord was to say that to me as I was hanging there on the cross and thinking that the last hours of my life were going to be lived in excruciating pain. But those last hours of my life were not going to be the last of my existence. But there was something far better waiting for me once the pain and the anguish and the sorrow and the humiliation were all done. A lot of people want to take what the thief said and they want to say that that's all you have to do is do what the thief did. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And a lot of people want to make a big fuss about the thief on the cross. Well, what about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? Why can't I be saved with just a statement like he was? A couple of reasons. First being, this man lived and died under an old covenant, an old system. The death of Jesus hadn't initiated the new covenant yet. And as this man was here hanging on the cross, he also was there face to face. He could probably turn his head and look and see Jesus, the one who had power on earth to forgive sins. And this man who knew that he could save others as the Jews reviled him, he could save him. And friends, we look at this and we say, if he had the power to look to Jesus and say, well, Lord, save me, then why can't I look to the Lord and say, save me? The other reason is, is that there's really no evidence to show that this thief wasn't baptized in his lifetime. That this man didn't respond to the call of John, uh, of, of John the baptizer. In fact, Mark chapter 1 talks about the fact that all Jerusalem and Judea were coming to be baptized by him. But a lot of people want to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? When in reality, out of all the things that Peter, preaching the very first sermon on Pentecost, could have told those Jews on that occasion, the very same ones who had murdered Jesus, when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, well, just say a prayer like the like the thief on the cross did. What he said was, you want to call upon the name of the Lord, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for to receive the removal, the remission, the wiping away of your sins. You don't want to pay for your sins. You want to be just a Christian, one who's faithfully following Jesus. You've got to do what those early Christians did. We cannot look to the thief on the cross as a pattern for our salvation when there are so many other patterns here in the New Testament after the church is established that tells us exactly what we need to do. 
But friends, God forbid that we don't look or that we look at the cross and we don't see a place of promise. Isn't it comforting to know that after our own pain and after our own sorrow and after our own humiliation and difficulty that we live in this world, that no matter whether or not you've lived your life on top of a mountain, but if you've been living faithfully Christ, you're going to recognize that that's going to take you down in the valleys. If I've lived the majority of my life down in the valley, what beautiful promise that Jesus made is the fact that once we finish our race, once we breathe our last, if he has delayed in his tarrying, if he has not come yet, we're going to go and we're going to rest with the Lord and we're going to ever be with the Lord. What a beautiful place of promise to think about. And friends, as we look at these things, potentials, if you will, of what we see in the cross, you're somewhere on this list this morning. You're somewhere on this list. And what you see in the cross is so important because you're going to give an account to God about what you see in the cross. And the more I think about Jesus hanging there between those two thieves and this one receiving the promise and this one not receiving the promise, I think what would compel this man over here who was just content to revile Jesus and with his dying breath and with his remaining strength and with the pain that it caused him to throw insults and throw accusations at Jesus... And surely he heard the promise that Jesus made to this man. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. What compelled this man from saying, Lord, me too. Lord, I want that as well. What compelled that man to die in a place where he was not going to be ready to meet the Lord when he had the Savior of all mankind hanging right there with such an opportunity? He's not going to get down off that cross He knows death is coming, and he's going to use his remaining breath to revile the Savior. Why not say, me too? Lord, I want what that man has. Lord, I want that promise. I want that hope of life to come. Because somebody doesn't see the cross as a place of promise, The question I ask this morning is, why don't you look at the cross of Jesus and say, me too. I want what that man has. The apostles preached on Pentecost and every day after that, all the way up through the first century, all the way now to the 21st century, that if you want that same gift, if you want the promise that Jesus makes, you have got to respond to the cross. You've got to look and see that it's not just the death of a man, it's the death of the Savior of the world. And through his resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God with power. That God has made this Jesus that those men crucified on that occasion, that we crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the one that you need to be obedient to. He's the one that I need to be obedient to. And he's told us how we can get into Christ As many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, Galatians 3 and verse 27 Do you not know that as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. That's not just the promise of life to come, but that's the promise of life that is. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, and you can have that life this morning. But you have to say, me too. 
I want to be obedient to the gospel. I want to obey that form of doctrine from the heart. I want to understand the gospel plan of salvation. If you want to understand more about it, we'd be glad to open the Bible and show you exactly what it is for the new covenant and for the New Testament age to be able to receive the gift of grace, to receive the gift of Christ. And we can help you do that this very morning. Maybe there's somebody here that's a Christian already that's looked at the cross and said, the cross has just become a man hanging there. I don't see any joy in my Savior. I don't see any joy in what he did. I don't have any satisfaction in, in his sacrifice and his suffering. Friends, don't keep that to yourself. Don't let it be a place of indifference for you. Change your mind and change your heart. Let us know so we can help you, so we can encourage you, so we can fan the flame of the joy that ought to be there based upon the death of Christ and certainly his resurrection, that your life can be a life full of joy. How can we help you this morning? Friends, there is no time like the present. There's no other time that's guaranteed to us than this message that you're hearing right now. You could go out and this could be the very last day that you live. You could not even make it out of the parking lot. We're not guaranteed that time. And if you know that you're not living right, make it right. Change it this morning. Ask somebody to help you. We stand ready to help you as we stand and sing our invitation song. Let's do so.